0: Superbrain is a labor of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to
0: Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and my guest this week is Dr. Mary McGill, a digital culture researcher, journalist and author of The Visibility Trap, a feminist guide to navigating self-representation on social media. So you are Dr.
2: Mary McGill now, yes? I am. And and again, (laughs) it was so funny. It's been such a mad year. So basically, I had my Viva on March 4th, 2020, Aviva for people who don't know is where you defend your PhD and it's pretty hair raising. Thankfully mine went well. So I became a doctor, um, but literally a week later, we went into lockdown. So it's been, I don't know how it feels for you, but for me, it's felt like this constant sense of suspended animation. Like you're working and you're doing things, a lot of which you would normally do, but the circumstances are completely changed. And then, you know, you write a book and it comes out and it's all, um, I'm a doctor. Virtual. Virtual, yeah. (laughs) I'm a doctor and I have a book and kind of none of it feels real. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been kind of wild, but I love doing events like this because it helps make it feel that more tangible. So, yes, I am a doctor, Dr. Mary McGill.
0: Like it is amazing that you literally did your viva and published a book, which means then you were also writing the book while you were doing your Ph.D. I mean, your Ph.D. feeds into this book.
2: It does. As you know yourself, a PhD is a very specific piece of work. It's for a very specific audience, which is academia has to meet various standards, all of which I love because I'm a big nerd and I really thrive in that environment. But When you're kind of working in an area um, like media studies or indeed psychology, you know, you're very often dealing with phenomena that are so current. And so in the process of researching my PhD, I was constantly coming across stuff that wasn't quite right for that particular project, but certainly spoke to wider issues. In the culture that I was observing you know through my work um, and as a journalist as well the obvious thing to do was to be like let's keep this material when you have some breathing space hello lockdown um let's put it yeah. all together <laughs> and see what we get ironically enough and sadly enough that big shift to digital that was already well underway over the last 10 to 15 years but yeah. really accelerated from March 2020 in a lot of ways, intensified the things that I wanted to write in the book. But then those things just took on a further life of their
0: own and once we entered this world. And one thing really jumps out at me that you said, and I will talk in more detail, but you had some fact somewhere in this amazing book, which is called The Visibility Traps, Sexism, Surveillance and Social Media. And it is an absolute must read for anyone who's on social media, but particularly women on social media. And I think men also to understand how differently social media impacts on women compared to men mm-hmm. but you did have one and I'm sure you'll remember it and I may state it slightly inaccurately but that really surprised me that was during the COVID-induced lockdown incidences of online image-based sexual abuse of women increased in Europe. Oh yeah. That's incredible. Yeah
2: It is incredible. And you can extrapolate out from that as well, because that trend, image-based sexual abuse is obviously a part of it. But if we just say gender-based abuse that takes place online or digital gender-based abuse, I mean, that across the globe, you know, this is not confined to any particular country or culture. This is a a result of the shift to online living that happened from March 2020. And when it comes to image-based abuse, what's particularly heinous about that is that even the threat of it can be absolutely devastating. So no images even need to be shared necessarily. It's just the fact that somebody
0: has them and they have that control over you. So we're talking about really sharing images that are meant for private consumption, mm-hmm. or in fact, images that have been taken without the consent Indeed. of the individual or whatever various forms, but they are images that are being shared without the person's consent. But then also there is the issue of whether people then share their own images and then someone reuses it. But anyway, it's a very scary phenomenon and as you just said there the threat of that because people do particularly when it comes to romantic relationships and I have done a podcast episode on love sex and the brain you know and Mm -hmm. essentially when you're in the throes of lust and love the very early stages the brain switches off your frontal lobe so you don't think rationally your ability to assess risk is reduced Uh, your decision making is compromised I mean love really is blind and you are viewing that person through rose tin glasses. They're not just psychological phenomenon. They're actually physiological, neurological changes that take place in your brain. And so you very easily could feel that it's very appropriate in that private context that that person is someone that you may be going to spend a long time with and you're madly in love with and you share images that are meant for that individual's total and soul consumption. And then things change. And then actually your frontal lobe may kick in and you kind of go, oh, this guy really isn't for me. And oh, my God, he now has those images. And yeah. then there's also the fear then, you know, it's, it's like another form of emotional blackmail in terms of ending relationships. Now people actually have people might in the past have made empty threats of I oh, will ruin your life. You'll never work here again or whatever. But actually now I have images that could completely destroy your life so it's very very scary
2: it
0: is and would you agree just when you were talking there about You said it transcends culture and country and borders and boundaries. And I mean, really, literally, what just kind of came to my mind is the Internet is another country that we all belong to, and it has its own culture, but culture that has evolved without any checks and balances in place. I feel very strongly that we need ethics. We need an ethical monitoring of the Internet and new technology in a broader sense, because for Mm -hmm. me. The internet, and I use this word purposely, the internet exploded into our world, whatever, mm-hmm. 31 years ago or 32 years ago. Mm-hmm. And even the individual who invented it would see that it is being used in ways that was not intended and has actually called for and acknowledged that it impacts more negatively on women and disempowers them. And he wants it to be a space that's free and available for all. Then we have this culture within people who can develop these programs and softwares and have all those tools, did stuff just because they could. And I'm all Mm. for it, just do it. But without thinking about unintended consequences, as well as having dubious intended consequences. And I liken it to, and that's why I use the term explosion. It's like the person who split the atom. Nobody thought that the atom bomb was going to come from it and cause the devastation that it has and world-changing effects. And I, I feel the same as here. And I feel more of us need to speak up and say, no, there has to be ethics, independent bodies put in, and it's not about censorship, it's about actually exploring intended and unintended consequences and seeing how they could impact on the users.
2: Yeah. At the end of the book, I write about a very old book called Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, which is a fantastic read on many levels. But when we talk about technology, it's it's kind of a short and people often reach for it. And there's varying interpretations of what Shelley was trying to say in that book. For me, the big takeaway is you have, you know, Victor Frankenstein who creates this so-called monster who wasn't Monster Mm. to begin with. You know, he's ultimately rejected by his father and, and leads a lonely existence and ends up doing all kinds of horrible things, particularly when it comes to Victor. And Victor ends up destroying his own life through his own creation and the challenge I think in that what Shelley was getting at and don't forget she was alive you know in the 1800s during the time in history when the kind of modern world as we experience it today was, was basically the seeds for that were being sown right through technology and advancements in science and so on but it, you know this is kind of a moral question there about the responsibility of creation like what are we going to create how are we going to respond to that? Our ability to create is a magnificent thing, but it is bound to you know, society, to the individual, to our responsibility to each other, and of course to the planet. And that raises all kinds of moral and ethical questions, because if Victor Frankenstein had actually... While he was following his ego to create this being, he did this entirely on his own and and with all this passion and and he was working through grief and lots of difficult emotions as well. If he had other people around him who maybe would have said, is this the best idea, Victor? If he'd had those conversations with other people, if he'd maybe thought ahead and tried to project what it'd be like for this being in the world or what his relationship would have been to this being and so on, perhaps we wouldn't have had the tragic tale probably not as good as a story, mind you, but we wouldn't yeah. have had the tragic tale that it ended up being. And I think those questions about the responsibility of creation, you know, um, not going blindly into it, having the humility to ask, what am I creating? What are the possible outcomes? Should I get somebody else's advice about this? You know, and so on. You know, the kind of questions really that philosophers ask and ethicists ask. And if I could kick my fingers in the morning, you know, and go back 10 or 15 years, I would love to have seen a situation where long before these products ever got into our hands or got into our phones, they were trialed at the design stage, not just by engineers
0: who mean well or just designing products. Yeah, but they're just looking at whether it does what it's meant to do as opposed to the impact that it can have on human beings who are going to use it
2: exactly and so what you want ideally is if um, these technologies have enough good stuff in them that we want to, to keep them around. Um, not forgetting, you know, that this it feels like they've been here quite a long time, and the grand scale of things, they really haven't. You need to get to a place where you have, long before that they are unleashed, you have people in that system that can temper it that bring a range of perspectives, everything from, you know, as you said, ethics, psychology, media, policy, all of these things. Of course, you know, children's welfare, all of these things. So that when these products finally get into the marketplace, they're built in such a way that the potential harms are, you you can never completely remove risk and there'll always be an element of personal responsibility, but the capacity for harm is greatly reduced. And along with that, then you need
0: a kind of a change in cultural approach to how we understand the role of these technologies. Essentially, you know, how our brain has evolved over millions of years is what has given us this advantage and the ability to produce things like the internet. But throughout that evolutionary history, the tools that we have created shape our brains. So Always everything that we do, and that's what I'm passionate about. Sort of explaining to people, your brain is the master controller, in a sense, of your behavior. So is your behavior, your behavior shapes your brain. So it's a bi-directional relationship. So for me, I mean, I'm a massive user of the internet, and I cannot imagine writing books without being able to access journal articles online. And there's incredible benefits to it, but it is the unintended consequences and the failure to acknowledge that. This tool, this Internet, the social media is changing human beings, not just I mean, I know we're aware of things like the psychological impact and people actually being driven to suicide. Caroline Flack in a way comes to mind. You know, obviously she had other issues kind of going on, but, you know, these things contribute in terrible ways and destroy people's lives in very real ways. So what is it doing to us as a species? How is that kind of changing? That kind of stuff has to be considered. And like, I think it's kind of crazy that it's not. We do not allow medication to be produced without it going through so many clinical trials. And yet, Mm-hmm. And I do think this comes from the failure to understand actually how the human brain is influenced by behavior and how the human brain mm-hmm. functions. And you do touch on various amounts of these things in terms of our need for social approval, you know, to be part of a group. Yeah. Like, as you said, the Internet's only around for maybe whatever. It's not even a second in the history of humanity. And our brain has evolved to need social contact, to need social approval, Mm. we must make sure that we abide by the social rules within our group, our environment, because if we don't, we risk being ostracized and humans do not do well in isolation. And again, being isolated Mm -hmm. changes how your brain functions, etc. So Mm. our ancient brain is Operating and following those instincts, oh, I must be part of this group. But these aren't groups you're actually really part of. They don't exist. However, the impact of them could ostracize you in a way that is much bigger than being ostracized from the actual group within which you live physically. It actually has these tentacles that can reach in and cause you to lose your job and lose your mental health and well-being in so many ways. It's phenomenal sexism, surveillance and social media is the tagline to The Visibility Trap. So I would love to talk to you, first of all, the title of the book, and then to actually talk about surveillance. I mean, surveillance is a concept that prior to my going to university, I'd only thought of it in terms of security and surveillance cameras. Then when you study psychology, you understand surveillance in a very different way, and it can include self-monitoring and all those kind of things. So I'd like us Mm. to sort of talk about that in very real and concrete terms. And the book does that, guys. Like it's grounded in very solid research and science that crosses multiple disciplines that's what's very nice you don't just sort of stay within your own discipline the research is from multiple disciplines but it's told in a very accessible way and very real way in that um, you will be able to relate it to what you're actually doing on social media and why you're doing it so I want to start at the outset of the book you do invoke philosopher Michel Foucault the French philosopher who actually really, in a way, said that visibility is a trap. Mm-hmm. Would you explain, because you do it very well in the book, historian and where it comes from prison and that observation and another lovely yeah. new word, panopticism. <laughs> Mary's going to tell us what uh, yes. that is. I'm going to
2: go for it. Um, Tabinda. thank you for being so enthusiastic. This is just so lovely. So panopticism, yes, Foucault was taking an idea that had been developed by the Victorian social reformer Jeremy Bentham, essentially a design for an ideal prison. What made this prison ideal was how effective it was in terms of surveillance. So at its centre, you had a tower where the guards could look into the cells, which circled the tower. And from the tower, they could see directly into any cell at any given time. And what this, in theory, would produce in the prisoners is a sense that because they were never sure if and when they were being watched, they behaved at all times as if they were being watched at all times. I think Foucault writes that it's like being in a cage that is its own kind of like theatre stage. So there's great visuals in that particular chapter. The chapter is called um, Panopticism. You don't have to make a massive leap from those ideas to the nature of platform capitalism and the way that social media works. We are part of the allure of these platforms is that we get to be visible, right? We get to be seen by other people uh, far outside our, our normal network of people and we in turn get to see things we wouldn't otherwise see. We get to share ideas, we get to um, talk and we get to watch as well, which is a, a big appeal. But the problem is that all of this visibility up until this point has been sold to us very much as a net good, as something that we can use to thrive The positives are always way out the negatives. So we've got to a point now in a culture where we are beginning to reassess those assumptions. And when you think about surveillance, as you said, quite rightly, we normally associate it with George Orwell, the notion of Big Brother. It's usually the state or companies, corporations or the police that are involved in surveillance. But there's another type of surveillance now that has arisen because of the way that we use technology and particularly social media usually refer to it as social surveillance. Now, people look at each other in life all Mm. the time. And there may be, you know, a degree of surveillance involved in that. But this kind of mainstreaming of surveillance is without precedent. I mean, we are watching and being watched as individuals in ways that used to be reserved, really, for the most visible people in the Mm. culture. So maybe politicians and celebrities. Now everybody who has a social media platform is engaging to a greater or lesser extent, in some form of image management, you know, for want of a better word. We're preempting how other people see us. We're taking those ideas that the platforms put forward of what a popular person is or a good person is. And we're tailoring our self-representations so as to benefit from this visibility. And of course, at all times, to avoid the trap. Because this is very uncertain Terrain, Sabina, as much as we can enjoy visibility, it can also be a very difficult thing to navigate, particularly when you're trying to reproduce yourself and represent yourself in a way that meets the criteria for whatever platform or culture you're involved in um, or want to appeal to, but maybe doesn't feel representative of who you are. And yet, these representations are taken increasingly as who we are, right? Your LinkedIn is who you are. Your Twitter profile is who you are. And I know as a psychologist, you're going, of course it isn't. And I, am yeah. you know, as a media theorist a cultural scholar, I'm going, of course it isn't. However, we have grown up in a world where most people don't have access to the education that enables them to navigate these spaces with the awareness that a representation is a representation. Mm -hmm. It's always qualified. It's always constructed. It's always a negotiation. It is not the real thing. And even when people, and a lot of people who spend a lot of time online, and I count myself one of them, and I have the benefit of research and and education in this area, even when you know, there's a difference between intellectually knowing and emotionally knowing. And these technologies engage our emotions in ways that people don't passively consume media. And people think, oh, you just sit down, you watch the television, and there's nothing going on there. It's, when you actually talk to people about the way they consume media, it's generally, you know, it can be quite more complicated than assumptions would lead you to believe. But this is a whole other world, right? Yeah. So you can know that you're navigating a space that is a whole of mirrors and it's not real, quote unquote. But on an emotional level, it can still take a significant toll because it taps into something. I think, you know, what you were saying earlier on about wanting to connect and wanting to be seen. Mm. I mean, I always talk about earliest ancestors painted their hands on the walls of caves and we can still see those now, Mm. you know. And I always think of technology as any tool that allows human beings to kind of master their environment. And I think there's something profound and beautiful in our longstanding desire to want to represent ourselves and leave a mark and say, I was here. I think that's a beautiful thing. But I think we've entered a space now where we're so used to seeing representations and at the same time, not being equipped to be like, we've entered this world of images, but we need to remain rooted in something more solid
1: and more secure than that.
0: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's so many things come to mind when I listen to you speak and while I was reading the book. And I think it's one of those books that people can kind of come back to again and again. And there's a couple of things. So our desire to be seen just in terms of an individual, like anybody who's had a mother, you know, look at me, mommy, look at me, mommy, look at me, mommy, look at I'm doing, mommy, look at me, mommy. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that all of these things have... They've survived because they serve a purpose. So it is very important for an infant to remind their mother that they're there because they need to be fed. They need constant interaction for their brain to develop because those early years are hugely important. Like babies have more brain cells than adults. But in order for a really well working, healthy brain to develop, they have to have the interaction and learn how to be human. So that's one thing that kind of jumps to mind. And, And then another thing that jumps to mind from childhood. The equivalent having grown up without any of these things was that sense. And I have a real strong memory of this being in one of the cubicles, toilets in primary school. And we must have just had a catechism lesson. So for anyone listening who's not in Ireland, in Holy Catholic Ireland, when I grew up, catechism, which is the study of Catholicism, you had a class of it every single morning from primary school. Talk about brainwashing. That's a whole whole other area. (laughs) But we obviously just had a lessons about that God can always see what you're doing. So for me, that was probably my first experience of surveillance. And I remember sitting there and going, oh, is Holy God watching me now? holy God watching me now. That's a terrible thing to yeah. do to children. I mean, certainly growing up in a strongly yeah. Catholic family, it was a case of, oh, it's holy God watching me now? And I think that's mm. what really comes through from evoking the panopticism, that prison analogy. It's really true because what we have done is created a prison and people talk about saying, well, I'm going to go offline for a while or online. But even when you're not online, your brain is thinking like you go for a walk and you go, that would make a fabulous photo for social media. It's there. It's everywhere. Oh, I'd love to take a selfie now, but I can't. I see it. I'll put my hands up here. I will see it here. Like I've been talking to a social media person. I'm now working the gig economy. The university, my research Mm -hmm. can no longer take place. As you know, as a researcher, you get funding to do X amount of research. And my latest project was for four years and it can't happen. And so I am fully now working in the gig economy. And so I need to find ways to earn a living to keep a roof over my head as everyone does and so you kind of go okay I need to really build my social media presence but at least I'm very focused to know okay well I want to get more corporate wellness talks I want to get more people to buy my books more people to listen to my podcast so I kind of know right I have to have a focus but like one of the things when I am talking to someone is that they say oh you need more visibility and I say, well no I share my this and I put quotes up and I do that no you your face needs more visibility they need whoever they They are need to see you regularly need to put up three reels a week of you sharing your brain health tips. Now, for me, that's fine. I could do 100 reels a week on that or I could write up so many things to say, but I haven't been doing it. And I'll tell you why. And I'm being very honest here is because I would have to put my face on. And I feel I would have to put my best face forward. I've gained a bit of weight because of COVID. I don't particularly want to have that out there that every time I look at it, I go, oh, God, look, that's where I had the extra six kilos. And I'm not yet in that space where I feel I can go and do it barefaced having said that Mm. I had just reread one of your chapters this morning and I said okay I won't put the full makeup on (laughs) I put a little bit of tinted moisturizer and some lipstick and a little bit of eye makeup and kind of left it at that you see the problem is with now you see you're seeing yourself all the time with social media so we have this tendency to judge so even as you said even though I know these things and I know these traps, Mm -hmm. the way I put it is I am a human being Mm -hmm. first and foremost, before I am any of those other things, a psychologist or a neuroscientist. And while you made that distinction between the emotions and sort of our thinking and the brain evolved, we really kind of have three interlinked brains. So the oldest from an evolutionary perspective is uh, the reptilian brain that keeps us alive, breathing, digesting stuff you don't have to think about. The next to evolve is the limbic system, which is often referred to as the emotional brain, because that's where it handles our emotions. But it is unconscious. That's the key. It evolved Mm -hmm. to manage fight or flight. That's one of its primary things. But also learning and memory occurs there in a very unconscious way. Then we have our thinking brain, which is the brain that a lot of us think about as being our brain. And that's where things and misnomers that we decide to do things, we don't always decide to do them. Sometimes that decision making is retrospective. We are already, if if you look at neurons firing, we're already moving to do something before the message reaches our conscious brain where you say, oh, I'm going to do this. Your brain has access to billions of bits of data. It processes millions of bits of data every second, but you only consciously process about 30 or 40 bits. So that Mm -hmm. unconscious brain, it's not just emotional. I think that's the distinction I would make because learning and memory happens in there too so you're learning about how the world works but it is unconscious behavior that you do have the capacity to override that's really what's important but it is shaping an awful Mm -hmm. lot of our behaviors and the thing is where I feel the biggest inequity comes is that the people who have developed social media and the internet and all those things they understand how that part of your brain works and they manipulate it yes very well that's when the inequity occurs because most people do not Mm -hmm. understand that and that for me is one of my passions Mm -hmm. is to help people understand that so that you realize actually okay Mm -hmm. and also just because I'm doing that unconsciously doesn't mean I have no choice I do but I need to understand what and why and Mm what factors are influencing why I'm doing that. And if you understand that, then yeah. you might actually realize, oh, actually, I don't need social media to do that. Actually, social media is what's making mm-hmm. me feel anxious and depressed. It's interesting,
2: isn't it, you Nina, know, when, you're, when you're talking about the advice that you received to make yourself visible. And I think what gets lost in well-meant Advice like that is something that is inherent to visibility is exposure. Mm-hmm. And exposure can be a very ambivalent experience. Something else that's critical to surveillance and why surveillance is useful and compelling and sometimes very dangerous is the issue of control. Right. So those prisoners, the guard wasn't outside their door. Right. He wasn't there yeah. with the bat on and um, getting ready to give him a whack. But nevertheless, they felt his presence, whether or not it was there. So this was a very, this is what Foucault was arguing about in relation to the way that citizens and um, other institutions were beginning to control their citizens. So away from the guillotine, away from the stocks, to a type of control where the citizen actually enacts it on themselves yes. in anticipation of yeah. getting in trouble. Yeah. yeah, And so on social media, this notion of visibility, you cannot make yourself visible without some degree of vulnerability and judgment because these places are absolutely riven with invitations to judge both yourself and other people and often in a way that is very reactive and not at all kind of you know um reflective or thoughtful or anything like that but what you get with control is and control is very closely tied to visibility certain narratives of control where we are told that these technologies give us more control over our image than ever before And in certain respects, that is true, they do. But they also remove control in ways that are absolutely terrifying. Because while you watch the television, the television wasn't watching you. And it didn't have the capacity to turn around and input or take what you had inputted into it and distribute it across the world in seconds. And that's the reality of what social media and the internet today can do. And so you get this real kind of, I suppose, push-pull effect where on the one hand, yes, visibility if you're a self-employed person I'm I'm a journalist you know of course you're going to share your work you're going to um, share things that you're interested in that makes total sense but in amongst all that sharing are you know significant elements that you cannot control that are kind of unknowable and that may come back at you and this is the notion of the trap again in ways that you could never have anticipated and when they do and the book has so many examples of this we have allowed these technologies to get so far ahead of us that when these downsides happen, and they happen to women in very specific ways, there's often nowhere to turn. Yeah, and the culture has not advanced to the point where, instead of having sympathy for people who find themselves in these horrendous situations, the enticement, the, the, the expectation is still that you would judge. Yeah. Rather than be like, how have we let this happen? I mean, we must be better than
0: this. I think the control thing and the prison thing. You use a quote. I think it's from Lisa McInerney. When she's talking about, I think it's the incident in Slane, which was for listeners, which was at a concert where somebody filmed a girl engaging in a sexual act with a male. And it was all over social media, et cetera. And she was judged. And then there was this panic when it was discovered she was actually under 18 and, you know, sort of pulled back and all the rest. But the immediate thing was blaming the female. And anyway, aside from everything that's wrong about that, there is the judgment and people making judgments. And I think that's important to understand that like our brain constantly makes judgments. You know, it is making patterns. It's constantly figuring out where does that belong? How do I feel about mm. that? What is and those stories and those judgments, an awful lot of them are embedded from our childhood. So, I mean, I remember writing before about a piece that actually Roshan Ingle had written in the paper, and it was during the abortion referendum. And I was trying to get across a message. And I think sometimes actually what I said was misunderstood. As can easily happen. But the point I was making was I supported the campaign. I supported Roisin's article that she had written about. But one line in her article, she had said she was divorced. Okay, now. I think divorce is fabulous and should be loud. However, I was brought up in a Catholic family where divorce had negative connotations. And what I, I had a self-awareness when I was reading that article that when I read that, I went, oh, she was a divorcee. Like that that had something that I had been brainwashed in right back. And the letter that I'd written to the newspaper was we need to be careful of our implicit biases, you know, those biases that we're not aware that we have. Now, I think some people took it up that I was judging her because she was divorced or whatever. The truth of the matter was I had an implicit bias, but at least... I was aware that I had that bias. And so I was able to recognize it and override it. And actually, the reason that I wrote the letter was to say, beware of your implicit biases. There are so many of them that we don't realize that we have them. The Lisa McInerney, in response to that, a lovely line, she said, uh, different perfume, same shit. And she was bringing the analogy to (laughs) social media compared to religious control of women. And the thing is, women have been controlled for millennia using various means and I see religion as a way to do that it's that self-control You self-monitor what you should be allowed to do what you shouldn't be allowed to and I do think and your chapter in particular around this surveillance is very interesting we watch ourselves we watch others while technology watches all of us and the internet never forgets, and it is the thought that was just you know, your writing is fabulous, and saying those sort of things really kind of strikes home. And there's a good few stories in the book, for example, there's that one Miranda, is it the school teacher who Lauren Miranda, mm-hmm. yeah, did a selfie of herself topless sunbathing, very innocuous one, or whatever. and. Some people in the school found it, parents got wind of it. Long story short, she was sacked and lost her job because Mm. she took a photo years ago of herself with consent. And there's that whole thing, as you said, nipples aren't allowed. And I think that's the problem in that nobody wants a conversation anymore. People just want to cancel other people and virtue signal. But I just believe that this is how we affect change and we we move from black and white to nuance. But since then we have moved to a bifurcation to just a Black and white, you're either with us and against us. And if it's on one single opinion, that means you, as a person, as an individual, ceases to exist because you have one opinion that differs from another person. And that has impacted on my behavior, in that I feel very passionate about a lot of things. I no longer engage on Twitter about things that are controversial that I feel strongly about because I know that, A, you can't get that subtlety that is so important for change to happen. That does not come across on Twitter. Even if you do, people will just pick out the first phrase (laughs) without the qualifying phrase or something like that. And so Mm -hmm. I have stopped, which means then that you have this, not only do you have an echo chamber, but you have a chamber that is missing some very important strong views that people have self censored. I've never felt more censored mm-hmm. in my life mm-hmm. since I've had the freedom to reach. Millions of people online. There's a wonderful piece in the book where it's the body positive movement, and you're talking about the body positivity movement and fat acceptance. And basically, that took off. And the people who sort of instigated that movement feel that what it's seen as now has nothing to do with the reason that they set the movement up. So most people think that body positivity and fat acceptance about, you know, be comfortable in who you are, love who you are, accept yourself. But actually it was about highlighting the barriers that exist to people of different shapes and sizes, which has a purpose to affect change. But now it's been diluted into this thing that actually won't affect change and can actually be detrimental to some people, you have a fantastic way to really illustrate some of these very important factors that I think are lost. There's a lot of people think they're doing good and they're repeating these really nice phrases and saying, but they're not living it or even actually understanding it.
2: It has to do a lot of the time with the nature of the platforms themselves, because we don't think of them when we're using them as businesses, but they are businesses. That's Mm -hmm. fundamentally what they do. And capitalism has a long history because it relies on novelty for growth. It's always looking for something new. So it will take things that people are interested in. And people are very interested in social movements and it will take elements of them and it will repackage them, usually by removing the politics and making them far more palatable for a general audience or consumer. And that will then come to stand for whatever had been this probably quite radical movement. So you get this really watered down version in the mainstream and social media plays into and intensifies those trends because it probably more than any other form of media before is so reliant on novelty because it relies on content it never closes it needs new stuff all the time so it's constantly plundering all kinds of areas of life in order to rum up something that's new something that captures human attention for however long it manages to do that and so these platforms as well you know in how they kind of neuter social movements sometimes because there is space there I think definitely to do good work but they're also you know you were talking about judgment earlier on A lot of the time uh, prior to social media, people judge, as you say, all the time. But that was often a kind of an unspoken process or an internal process or Mm. kind of a very virtual process and maybe quite intimate process only known to the individual or people close to them or whatever. Now. Judgment is a spectacle. Yeah. It's hardwired into the platforms themselves in terms of what you like or share or, yeah. of course, don't like or don't share, just as yeah. an example. Um, people are talking about their opinions all the time. There's yeah. the endless discourse that occurs. I mean, for me now, I'm like, what? there's the event or the product, whether it's a film or a television show or whatever the case may be, and then there is the endless discourse that just goes on and on and yeah. on about it or, or about events in the news or so on. Judgment is something... That is a type of content itself. So, of yeah. course, it's encouraged because we judge and judge and judge and judge and judge. But the thing is, when we enter into these spaces, we're both judging and being judged. Mm-hmm. And that can be light and superficial and fun, but it can also be absolutely terrifying and confusing and um, stressful, really, really stressful. And also judgmental behavior is often critical behavior and it's not particularly kind behavior and it's the type of behavior that actually isolates people rather than building communities or coalitions or a sense of reciprocity even with people who you disagree with and so by fostering our natural inclination to judge and in some cases not just fostering it like literally (laughs) shoveling coal into the fire when you think of outrage and everything else these platforms they might not cause these impulses but they certainly exacerbate them. I always think that rather than appealing to the angels of our better nature they appeal yeah. to the angels of our worst. No, no. Like what would it look like if we had a technology or, or different types of technologies that tried to do the opposite you know I mean you know I'm, I'm not for censorship or anything like that but just technologies that had developed with an awareness but that aren't reliant on exploiting the worst parts of humanity in order to make a profit.
0: But here's the really interesting thing. This just occurred to me. So forgive me as I'm just articulating this straight away. So our brain has evolved. It is an information processing machine. That is what it does. It requires data. Your brain has evolved the frontal lobes here, which are a filter system. Okay, and I think it's so funny. And this literally has just occurred to me. So social media, Instagram in particular, we have this whole issue of creating an approved version of ourselves and i say approved rather than improved version of ourselves using filters but what then the likes of twitter do is actually remove the filters that our brain has evolved to preserve us right we have those filters Mm -hmm. so that you don't turn around and tell your best friend God, you look really fat and ugly at the moment, or your hair is terrible or whatever. And forgive my, you know, if that's sort of a, an unpc comment, but that actually is the point of it. Your filtering system, you will have those thoughts and make those judgments, but your frontal lobe says, don't say that that will ruin your relationship or find another way to say it if you're concerned about somebody's health or find a different way to deal with it maybe suggest hair colors or you know in a very different way and so we have this amazing system that preserves our relationships and generally serves us very well and the filter is gone and it's like we go straight from the thought onto the keyboard and we bypass our rational Mm. thinking brain. And that's not good. You're actually sort of regressing to a previous form of being human that we evolved out of. Sorry, that just kind of came to me, but it is true. We're unfiltered in our responses and we need to filter again and start thinking about other people because empathy and those things are just out the window. People say such nasty stuff. But I, I guess where my fear is going to now is that people certainly when there are groups i don't think it happens when there's individuals but now when there are groups who go from online to offline they in the comfort of the group feel comfortable engaging in hate speech or whatever and i think that's where we're in trouble and that's what we saw with the storming of the white house and horrible actions that's what scares me is that that online, mm-hmm. that is changing human behavior, human behavior that has served us mm-hmm. well. So engaging in unfiltered behavior. And it's very easy to turn around and say to people, oh, they're uneducated or they're this or that. And we do know that there's certain correlations in terms of who will believe in fake news and who will be victims of conspiracy theory, believing them, etc. But putting all that down to lack of education or lack of intelligence is incorrect, I believe anyway, a lot of it is the permissiveness Mm -hmm. and the switching off of those filters because those people did have filters in the past (laughs) because they kind of behaved Mm -hmm. as humans. So Mm -hmm. it's very scary. I want to move on, but there's just so much to talk about this book that I think we actually need two episodes. So I'm going to leave you lovely listeners to get your head around what we've spoken about so far on social media. Are you shocked? Surprised? Maybe you knew it all already. Whatever. I'd really love to hear your thoughts. And do tune in next week and listen to myself and Mary continue our conversation about social media, including discussing its puritanical attitude to the female body in some but not other circumstances. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Superbrain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad-free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Super Brain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview